everyone, and welcome to Minute 76 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast, where we take a wild trip through the 1987 John Hughes comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today is Sally of the Lockdown MLB podcast, uh, previously of the Bull Durham Minute, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Welcome to the show, Sally. Thank you. My full name is Paul Francis Sullivan, but everyone calls me Sully, and there are too many Paul Sullivans out there, so it just it makes things easier. So, yes, I host Lockdown MLB. We talk about baseball. I'm a huge movie fan. I've been on a bunch of these movie-by-minute podcasts. I've done a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. And I'm here in Los Angeles, California. And there you go. All the way across the world. You know, that's the, that's the, beauty, right. of, the beauty of technology. You know, I can be in Israel. You can be in California. Ten hours apart. It's for you. It's it's morning. For me, it's night, and we can still do this and have a lot of fun talking about movies that we love. That's right. Or at least that That's I do. Right. I I hope you love this movie too. Oh, that, I do. I think this one. I think there are very few great Thanksgiving movies, and I think this is this and uh, uh, probably Barry Levinson's Avalon are the two great Thanksgiving movies of all time. Okay, and, I can uh, agree with that. I and uh, this is really. There's so much about this film that I really, really love, and I showed it to my kids uh, during the COVID Thanksgiving, and uh, it it went over great. It went over great. Oh wow! So uh, okay. it still it holds up. The film holds up. Yeah, no question about that. Thirty five years going, uh, and it still is, is is very heartfelt. No matter how many times you've seen it, and forget about just being heartfelt. It's hilarious. This it's is this funny. is one of the this is one of the few movies that I can sit and watch, and it doesn't matter the fact that I've seen it dozens upon dozens of times. I will laugh out loud at some of the antics and everything that goes on here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to bring up something a little later, but I think that this came out in a sweet spot of Hollywood comedies that came out between '87 and '88, where I think it was the absolute pinnacle of Hollywood comedies, the greatest era we've ever had for Hollywood comedies. Was screw it. Let's talk about it now. There, there, there okay. seemed to be a point before <laughs> before like franchise films started really ruling the roost, and you can really point to that summer of '89. You mean when people actually when had original like, ideas? Yeah. Well. Well. <laughs> yeah. But I, but goes even beyond that. Like '89, they figured out, hey, if we throw out Batman and Indiana Jones and James Bond and Star Trek and all these things, they all come out at the same time. It will just make summer be like a a franchise buffet and you saw in the years before that there was a bunch of great great comedies that that stand the test of time in 88 alone you had hairspray beetlejuice big bull durham uh who framed roger rabbit coming to america fish called wanda midnight run married to the mob naked gun twins dirty rotten scoundrels i'm gonna get you sucker and working girl all in the same year you forgot about three minutes of baby uh, Which no, came out? Maybe it was a year. No, no a year it came before. out. It came out the same day. Oh, sorry, you're sorry. You're talking about eighty-eight. This is eighty-seven. That's eighty-eight. Right. Sorry, That's sorry, 88. sorry. Eighty-seven. Sorry. The year before, you had right. this film. You had um. What did you just mention? You mentioned three men, three uh, men and a baby. Right. Three men and a baby. You had raising Arizona. You had broadcast news. You had all these films that, that seem to all come out at the same time. That are amazing comedies. And the thing that I love about, and this film fits perfectly in that, is that they're funny movies, but they're not gag driven. They're they're like they're more character driven, which is one of the reasons why you can rewatch a lot of these movies yes. over and over again. 
is because their char- the comedy comes from the characters as opposed to the characters being there to deliver jokes. Right. That's very and true. you could point to like the best ones of them. I have a rabid Bull Durham fan. Obviously, I did a whole podcast on that. Really? Like, you know, I'm this surprised. One, no, I'm yeah, this one, <laughs> Midnight Run, Broadcast News. I've been going through all of them where it's not necessarily filled with jokes, but it's filled with such great characters and the humor comes out from them that they're rewatchable because, and you mentioned you've watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles many, many times. It's because the comedy isn't about the surprise of a punchline, but it's about you wanting to spend time with these funny people. Yes. And yes, there are very funny gags in it. And but it's mainly about I want to be with Steve Martin and John Candy during this during this road trip. Similar to my love for Paul Durham is I want to spend a baseball season with Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, and Kevin Costner. In that order? Or broadcast news. Yeah. Oh, you want to just <laughs> I mean and, and the other nice thing is that it has an ending. They aren't open ended. These aren't franchises with sequels. You're seeing your 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 for the next ninety minutes to two hours, you're gonna enjoy your time with these people, and then the story's over. Yes. And so I I I miss this amount. I'm I'm being old man Sully right now, but I kind of miss this care and love on making these types of comedies because I think it's a lost art. I think we do see it in comedies that are streaming services and everything but there is something about the 90 minute comedy that you love these these people and then it's over yeah and i i i sincerely miss that yeah like i completely agree with you on that that that's a, a very it's a great point that i appreciate i appreciate yeah. you bringing that up i mean we've we've done 75 episodes up until now this is the first time that's been brought up but it, it it's about time oh, big there oh, you go big big is another one big is a big is a masterpiece yes and and it came out when there were a bunch of body switching, you know, kid and adult switching movies. But we don't remember any of those. We remember Big because it was character driven, and it's not gag. But that's also because and, of the way Tom Hanks played the character. And it's also the discipline they had to have it be a film about what it would really be like, instead of just the goofiness and oh, the kids would be skateboarding or whatnot. Right. And I think, and and this film, obviously, you have. I bring it back to Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I don't know what the other people said in the show. You have two masters of comedy who are uh, in some ways at the peak of their powers. And I think, you know, you're going to have me list my favorite John Candy and my favorite Steve Martin film. Uh, I assume you mean other than this. No, including this. Because this. Including this. Oh, well, then, you're going to have to rank fine. them. But, but, um, but hold on. Keep people um, in suspense for that. Okay, but I would just say... <laughs> I can't I can't think of a better use of either one of them. And it's an odd world where Steve Martin is the straight man. Yes. Uh, but he's brilliant at it. Yes. And he's still very funny at it. And so it's less about like an Abbott and Costello, you're the straight person setting up the, the joke one. It's let's take these two comedic types. It's the best kind of comedy where they're able to go back and forth and ban- and be able to bring their strengths to the to the table. Uh, and I think that's what makes this such, this is going to be a film. I'm going to like the Philadelphia story, like, uh, the apartment. That's the type of comedy that people are going to be watching generations. Because it's timeless. It's timeless. There's no question about it. It is a timeless film and it doesn't ground itself so much. Granted, 
the lack of cell phones and the lack of ATMs and things like that. Kind of like the movie, um, uh, one of my favorite dark comedies of the 80s was After Hours, the Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese comedy, which would have completely been solved with an ATM machine. Right. Well, this, this, this yeah, movie would have been solved with a cell phone. phone so. Yeah. Right. But it, we don't have a cell phone in it. And um, so I think that, or they'd have to come up with a contrivance of there's no cell reception here or he lost his cell phone or something. But uh, I, I really... Uh, I love right. what's, what's, I really, what's really ironic. Love. I don't I don't know if you know this and I don't know if it's still in the plans, but they they were planning on making a remake of this within the past few years with uh, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. OK, which obviously now after the Oscars this year, that's not going to be happening. But, you know, I, I can't understand. I, mean, I can't understand how they could make something like this now based on what you just said. I mean, every day everyone's got a cell phone. Well, it's not. Here's here's what I'll here's what I'll say in the de- in the defense of this hypothetical movie, and believe me, with the Will Smith story, by the time this airs, it'll be so old news. Do one interview with Oprah, <laughs> make one commercial with Chris Rock, it'll all be over. I mean, come on. Until until next on. year's Oscars, um, when when that will be all of the jokes. That, when the two of them will come on, well, like they'll host together or something like. That. I mean, it'll be so old news. But um, but the uh. What was I saying? Um, I, I I do understand there there are templates that we have and that like we so all the films that we just talked about, there will always be road comedies with two comedic figures. I mean, heck, Hope and Crosby are examples of that. And this is like and you like you Ghostbusters had its origins in Abbott and Costello doing a ghost thing or, you know, or. You know, there's or the or the three stooges being in a haunted house. You know, there's always going to be those templates that we keep coming back to. I mean, you know, broadcast news is essentially like, uh, you know, his girl Friday. I mean, it's 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 we keep coming back to these because they work. I have no problem with ripping off. I don't I have no problem with rip offs. I love rip offs. Indiana Jones is a rip off. Ghostbusters is a rip off. Star Wars is a rip off. You know, broadcast news was a ripoff. They rip off other things and update it. So I have no problem with putting Will Smith, even post slap right. Will Smith, in a road comedy with Martin Lawrence, someone who he's proved he could be in successful comedies with. So I just don't want it to be called planes, trains, and automobiles. I want it to be called something right. else. And so they so it won't have the baggage of of you're not the same as Steve Martin and John Candy, right? an almost identical film where their personalities are in it. Like we have the ice cube tray just put in different yeah. liquid. Okay. You know, that's kind of what we've seen. Right. So I, I have no problem with them doing a road comp. Just don't call it plane trains right. and automobiles. Okay. I completely agree with you on that. All right. So minute 76 begins with Dell yeah. reentering the room and ends with Neil grabbing the passenger side of the door. Okay. So, Friday, we, we finished things off by the, the two of them getting a little tipsy on those little bottles of, of booze and Doritos and yeah, chips. And, and him zapping himself. And, and, <laughs> and then, you know, we had, we had Dell go into the bathroom, and then he comes out of the bathroom, and he's in the room. Obviously, you know, uh, Neil is, is already trying to fall asleep. And as he's doing that, you see that, that Dell is a little tipsy, you know, a little disoriented also. And he's still laughing from everything that they've just been been talking about, and you know. Right. And then he looks at the lamp hanging from the ceiling. And goes, "How the hell does this turn off?" 
and like he, it's pretty funny that 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 he does it this way because it it basically shows how you know how those little bottles of booze could really affect him. You know, he's he's not used to it. Even though last week we we talked about the fact that there are his bottles of booze. You know, they didn't steal them from the from the motel. It, it was in Dell's bag. That that's where they got all this booze because they didn't have any money. Yeah. So and then he he somehow tries to to turn off the light and shocks himself. And you see that like you hear the sound of the electricity in the room being shorted out. And he we get we get the little comedic scream as the um, as as the screen goes dark. Punctuation. <laughs> yeah, it's a great punctuation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's it's you know it's a nice scene, and it kind of just turns into a nice little boom. Like, that's just how do how do we uh, how do we uh, yeah, how wrap do we end this up? scene up? And, yeah. and there it is. It, it's a nice little it's a nice little uh, you know ending, a little little coda for the yeah. scene there, and it gives us a, it gives us. It's one of the things. It's a tricky film. This film has, and and I'm, I'm, this film has a strange sort of a needle it has to thread because it has really, really wacky comedy, and it has really, really heartfelt dramatic yes. scenes, and th- that's a tr- very tricky uh, balance to create because they, sometimes when you see a film where they try to get way too saccharine. Uh, and then have some way too over the top moments. Uh, there's another uh, John Hughes film which I think did it really, really unsuccessfully, which was right. Uncle Buck, where I felt the comedy scenes were wild and over the top, and the dramatic scenes were way too serious for what I was watching. And or right, he didn't too- get the balance right there, like he did here. Here he get the got the no, balance. No, and in this one he was able to get the balance. And I'm going to go back to another great comedy because the director of this nailed it with the great comedy I'm referring to is Butch Cassidy in The okay. Sundance Kid. And that was George Ray Hill was seeing that on the set, Paul Newman was starting to sort of ham it up a little bit while playing Butch. And he told him, no, 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 no. Just play it. Play everything real. Play everything and allow the material to be funny or allow the material to be dramatic. And I think in this film... I mean, Dell has scenes where he's zapping himself, a scene where he looks at the devil in the during the during the truck crash, and then you're crying at the end when you see him alone. Spoiler: when you see him alone yeah. in the train station. In order to meet that balance, you have to have a skilled performer John like, Candy. like yeah. John Candy, being able to play both sides, to play the sincerity of both sides, uh, with and with. Right. Do you know? Tone. Do you know? You can't do you know who they wanted to originally cast in this role before they they cast John Candy? Um, uh, Orson Welles. I have no idea. No, they wanted they wanted either John Goodman or John Travolta. Um, okay. I, well, I didn't, I didn't even know <laughs> Goodman was big enough. I mean, in terms of his star power, I I could certainly see Travolta do that. No, I don't think that's a bad choice at all. I I mean, it would have been a very I, I don't I don't think he could do it as well. Film. Um. It's kind yes. of like the original choice, uh, the the studio's choice to be opposite Robert De Niro in Midnight Run was Robin Williams. Robin Williams, and yes. that would have made it a completely different movie. May have made it a fine movie. I mean, it may have worked, yeah. but it would have been a completely different movie. Um, yes, I, I, you know, again, I, it's hard. It's sometimes hard to judge what a film would have been with a different actor. 
because you don't. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, Will Smith was offered the Matrix. Will Smith and Sean Connery were offered the Matrix, and it was Keanu yeah. Reeves and, and Lawrence Fishburne. Will Smith and Sean Connery could have been great. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll never we'll know. never know. But thank goodness, especially because we knew that John Candy had less than a decade on this planet, that we got this yeah. era John Candy with this era Steve Martin with this script. Correct. I mean, that's this is a Correct. Venn diagram of funny that uh, should be thankful. And just in this in this minute alone, there's very little dialogue. There's there's very few jokes in this. Obviously, you have the sight gag of the the car breaking through, but you know, as he's doing, as he's asking Steve Martin to push the car as the as the wheels are spinning, he doesn't play up any comedy. He's playing everything real. And yes. I, I, Dale comes out as a very very genuine genuine character throughout the entire movie. And that this film does not work because he has to be very genuine even when he's being obnoxious. Yes. Because if he was being an a hole and obnoxious, then this is a very short movie. Correct. <laughs> you know, because 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 at that point Neil just, just leave, leaves him and that's leave. it. Leave. We would have gone. We wouldn't have gone past <laughs> the airport. That's right. Completely. Right. And first of all, as we mentioned before, about I, I mean, I mentioned who was in the running for the role of Dell, but the 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 person who the studio wanted in the role of Neil was Tom Hanks. I, so think about that, Tom Hanks and John Travolta. That would have been a very different movie. And of course, uh, John Travolta was offered Forrest Gump. Yes. Yeah. Well, a lot of people were offered Forrest Gump. That, that all uh, again, said no. If this were Tom Hanks and John Travolta, again, it would have been a very different movie. But who knows? It may have been. It may have been. It may have been just fine. You know. But I again, yeah. I'm 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 very grateful we have this. And uh, yeah. another reason, again, I'm not to not to give a, a sneak peek at. Uh, when I do my lists, um, I think that both John Candy and Steve Martin are two of the funniest human beings ever to live on this planet Earth. And their filmography, in my opinion, has gigantic gaps of wastes of their talent. Yes, and, completely. And so when you have, you know, and, and again, I, and it's similar to the Marx Brothers for me, is I, I think the Marx Brothers are the funniest people ever to be filmed. And I think they made three or four. It's funny that you mentioned that because I just saw three Marx Brother movies this week. And like, I think they made three or four. <laughs> and good I was ones. cracking up. Yeah, and the the good ones are great, and the bad ones are just like, okay, all right, clearly, yeah. clearly, uh, this is a contract. And so, and, and you can see that with other. I mean, Richard Pryor, what made two or three good movies his whole career, you know, that never really captured who yeah. he was. Uh, so when you find the films that 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 capture it, kind of the way that Good Morning Vietnam captured Robin Williams in ways yeah. that other now that's another film from '87. I forgot so did, to mention. So did so did Dead Poet Society from the other perspective. Right. That Dead Poet showed that Robin Williams is a much he's a great com comedic actor, but he's even an even better dramatic. And the actor. best ones are when he when yeah. he captured the sincerity in both sides. I think the Fisher King yeah. what showed his best as a comedian and as a dramatic actor. Right. But anyway, mm -hmm. I, I digress. When you actually right. get the films that say you have these two first round draft picks of comedy and we're gonna use them correctly, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why, I think that's one of the reasons why this film holds up. Is because yes, people completely. love to see like these two guys who clearly like each other off camera, and clearly and and we're seeing the uh, the effects of that res mutual respect that they have is is on the right. screen. It's infectious, 
and and now so he's spinning. Uh, he's at the, he, I'm just going forward a little here, but you know he, he's they're pushing it. Of course, there's the great. I, I said earlier, Steve Martin's a straight man. He's not. He's he puts his own comedic power in us, and we're seeing his incredible gifts as a physical comedian. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, as he's trying to push it from the side with his feet going through the snow, and it's just wonderful. And and, and that and John Candy is still just sort of encouraging him as if it's doing. Yeah, because he's it, acting completely clueless that yeah. he doesn't see what what's going it's on. It's wonderful. There it's just wonderful to watch. Right. Right. So now we're, we we get the shot that it's in the daytime. John Can- uh, Dell is in the car he's trying to get neil to, to push the car because apparently you know he's stuck in a snowbank that a a plow came by and uh you know put too much snow or too much snow land you know fell that night in the fictitious uh november 26 1987 because as i mentioned numerous times there really was no snow in any of the cities shown in this movie on that particular day this is thanksgiving morning itself and you know we 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 get a short little conversation between them. You know, Dell says, "All set, just a minute. Give it a good push now." All right, all right. And then you you get Neil trying to push it, and he's like grunting, and it's like, as you mentioned, the the physical comedy of Steve Martin is just great because he's like pretending to push it, and like he slips as he's doing it and stuff like that. And then Dell says, "Push, put some muscle into it." Okay. Have, have, do you know where that that phrase comes from? Like, what is it usually referring to when you say put some muscle into it? What um, do you think? I think it would be lifting something heavy, but um, that's right. I, yeah, right. It's, yeah, it, it's dealing with heavy lifting, but in yeah. general, it's referring to people who are using their back muscles for right, things. Right. 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 Because you're yeah. you're you want them to put that extra effort from behind to push things forward. Right. And mm-hmm. then the the you know, Neil says, I am, I am. And then Doug goes, push for Christ's sakes, which is really <laughs> funny whenever you see like two people in in a movie where one of them is just sitting around doing nothing and, and, and giving orders to the other one to do something, you know, that, that he himself can't do. I mean, not that the right, car right. is any heavier because of the fact that, that Dell is driving. You know, it also makes you wonder why Neil would let Dell drive at this point after everything that Dell has done when he was driving. You th- You right. think that there'd be more of a reason to have Dell try and push besides the fact that he has maybe a bad back or whatever it is. And then uh, Dell goes, ah, I think we have to rock it a bit. All right. Okay. Up and down, up and down. And then you go, here we go. Ready? Okay. Yeah. And then he goes, here we go. Reverse. And, you know, they're, they're trying to, to get the car out of this, this little, you know, uh, snow, snow, uh, snow bank. And then uh, Dell basically just guns it. And yeah. Which is which is just really funny because you think that he would have a little more experience and not know to do that, and you know he he just floors it, <laughs> and the car then jerks backwards really really fast, and even before Neil has any chance to do anything, and it goes right into the to the motel room next to where they were. They 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 were staying in room number six, which is the one with the yellow door, and there's a blue door next to them, which is room number five. And they just completely, the car goes right through the, the, the window. And, you know, he ends up inside of the, the motel room, which, you know, is, is pretty funny to see. It's just great. It's also great. Uh, it, it, I like stunt humor, 
when mm-hmm. you see that it's like you see the, how, how they do that. Well, they drove a car into here and it yeah. really crashed. It's, <laughs> you know, that goes back to like going back to Buster Keaton seeing how do they do that scene where the house fell on him and he was perfectly in the window. Well, they dropped the house on him. He was perfectly in the window. I mean, that's I love when you see a gag like that and it's clear that they really did it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and, and that was really great. And then they. Um, you know, then you wind up playing Red River Rock, or at least the uh, the electrical version of Red River Rock. Yes, um, they start with and, their, this music. There is great, and and I like when you know Red River Rock is a instrumental rock song from the fifties that was kind of updated for this soundtrack with with techno synthesizers. Yeah, with, yeah. but I like it that they they did a deeper cut. When I first saw this film, I saw this film in the theater when it came out in 87. I, probably, I, I saw it in 87 when it was released. I'd never heard that song before. Right. So this, to me, was a, the song from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Right. For, um, for me, it still that, is. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's – I like it when, um, when they don't go for the obvious – when they don't go for the obvious uh, music track. I just finished doing a similar movie minute podcast – for the film um, The Sandlot, which is a comedy that yeah. came out in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, that, comedy. That, uh, uh, yeah I, I was on that also. That uh, Tierney, and Tierney does that. Tierney, yeah. yeah. Tierney and um, um, Rachel Mummert were hosting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of my problems I had with that film was that, again, it's a film that I think is a, is a nice movie, but they did some music choices that were – overly obvious, like when they were playing Green Onions at one point or Tequila at one point. And I'm thinking, like, I already associate those songs with other movies. Go go for a deeper cut. Right. And so I enjoy it like this. They went for a deeper cut on this. Obviously, Tarantino's made a career out of finding deep cuts that you now associate with his films. Yes. And when you have a, a you know, my stuck biggest... In, I will never think of Stuck in the Middle of It ever again without thinking of Reservoir Dogs. You know. Yeah, that that's a scene of that's a that's a song about torture. Right. You know, so that's that's that shows a lot of I, I, I liked you know, I liked that John Hughes went for a deeper cut here. And of course, um, you know, the the just the great look whether when they're looking around, you know, Steve Martin looks around, he dusts himself off and he ju- they jump back into the car as if to say like maybe we can get away with it and 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 they do and they do but i i want to back up one second if no pun intended or actually pun intended so when we see the shot of the car half in the motel room and half out so we actually can see that there's a pepsi vending machine on the yes. side you know thankfully they they missed that you know so what do you know about uh, pepsi do you know, uh, do you know when I it know was the delicious pe- I know it was a delicious beverage. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't. I'm not going to go room two, three, seven on this and, and try to find out each tiny detail of the background. Well, that's what I, I do. I that's what I do. Pepsi, but... So we're we're, okay, we're going to go into that. Tell me the room two, three, seven element of uh, the Pepsi machine. Okay. Here. Well, not of the Pepsi machine of Pepsi. Well, we'll get to the machine no afterwards. Pepsi, so. First, we're going to talk about the Pepsi. Then we'll talk about the machine. So Pepsi right. is a carbonated soft drink for most people. Obviously, yes. I know that manufactured by PepsiCo. Yes, it was originally created and developed in 1893 by Caleb Bradham, and it was actually originally called Brad's Drink. Okay, five years later, in you should never have changed it. You should never have changed it. <laughs> five years later, in 1898, it was changed to Pepsi Cola. Okay, now why do you think it was called Pepsi Cola? Because it was because uh, it gave you some pep. It gives you pep. no. 
that is not true. No, because it was it was originally advertised to to relieve uh, dyspepsia, which is most commonly known now as indigestion or an upset stomach. Okay, and cola was because that was the the flavor, the flavor of cola. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> the obviously pepsin itself was never used as an ingredient in in uh, in the drink, but it still uh, is will always be remembered because of that. Okay, the in 1903 he actually moved the, the his company to a he was originally he was he ran a drugstore. And then he moved it to a rented warehouse where in 1903, he sold 7,968 gallons of Pepsi. Okay. Which is just amazing at that time to be able to sell so much. The following year, he started bottling them in six ounce bottles and his sales increased to nearly 20,000 gallons. Okay. He more than, more than, he almost tripled the amount of, uh, of, of, uh, of drinks that he sold at that point. In 1909, he actually got a automobile race pioneer named Barney Oldfield to be the first celebrity to endorse his drink, Pepsi. And the quote that that this guy said uh, was, a bully drink refreshing, invigorating, a fine bracer before a race. And the, the, the advertising theme was delicious and healthful. And they, they used that phrase describing Pepsi for more than two decades. Okay. In 1923, it was actually bought up by a man named uh, Charles Guff, who was the president of Loft Inc., which was a candy manufacturer. And he had all these uh, soda fountains and he was very upset at the Coca-Cola company because they refused to give him a discount on their drinks. So that's why he bought up Pepsi in order to try to put Coca-Cola out of business. Okay, then the <laughs> Coke actually offered to buy Pepsi three different times over the decade of, between the 1920s and 1930s. And obviously it was rejected. All those offers were rejected. It, during the, the Great Depression, they decided in Pepsi to start selling things in 12-ounce bottles instead of the, the, the six-ounce ones that they were selling them in before. And but they were still selling them at the same price for a nickel each, and their advertising jingle became uh, "nickel nickel," which they were trying to actually get people to to buy it because they basically said the it, the jingle was "Pepsi Cola hits the spot, twelve full ounces. That's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel too. Pepsi Cola is the drink for you." So they were selling uh, larger bottles for the same price that Coke was was doing it. And they actually, um, their profits doubled because they did this. More people wanted to buy Pepsi than Coke at that time. But then uh, the Guth had a lot of problems. His his candy business wasn't doing as well as his Pepsi business, and his company was was near bankrupt. And then the the board of his company actually sued him and wanted to take over Pepsi because he used the profits from Loft to to create uh, Pepsi or to, to to make the business of Pepsi better. And it even went all the way up to the Delaware Supreme Court. And unfortunately, Guth lost and he lost the uh, the, the right to the whole thing. 
Then in the 1970s, Pepsi became popular because of their blind taste tests that they would do in, in stores. You probably know what that's called. The, the Pepsi, Pepsi challenge. challenge. The Pepsi exactly. challenge. Because uh, they, they claim that more consumers prefer the taste of Pepsi to Coke. And at this point, the sales of Pepsi began to climb even more. And because of the, the Pepsi challenge and that, so what did we have in the 1980s? The Cola Wars, where basically you had both Coke and Pepsi trying to get as many celebrities as possible to to endorse them. And Coke even went so far to change their formula, which we now all know is as New Coke, which wasn't as good as Coke Classic. So, you know, that, that, that caused a lot of problems. And also, Coke would, do you, do you remember who, who was the main celebrity endorser of Coke? In the eighties, well, that's Bill. That's Bill Cosby. Um, well, according to the research I did, it was Paul Abdul. Well, not in the eighties. Well, that would have been the late eighties. Okay. But uh, in the in the in the uh, uh, the mid eighties, right. Bill Cosby had a bunch of anti uh, uh, Pepsi right. challenge right. ads. I, I still remember the, uh, uh, the uh, Eddie I Murphy thought... quote about Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah, have a coke and a smile. Um, by the way. <laughs> Uh, in one of my marketing classes that I took uh, at Washington State University, um, I wrote a paper about oh, wow. New Coke and whether or not whether or not it was a failure. And it was because of the Cola Wars. Like New Coke has been labeled as one of the great failures in American business. That they the they had the formula of Coca Cola, they changed it. New Coke, they took the regular Coke off the market, and then re then they had to lick their wounds and reintroduce coca-cola classic later i made the argument that in the long run new coke was a resounding success for this reason pepsi was beginning to overtake coca-cola in the 1980s it was the choice of the new generation was the mm -hmm. the, the yeah, whole ad campaign that they had and they they created a version of coca-cola that tasted more like pepsi that was kind of the idea and then removed coca-cola and suddenly it made a great clamoring to bring back Coca-Cola. No, we right. miss Coca-Cola. It was almost like, right. make us miss you. You were ubiquitous. We were not taking you. We took you for granted. And then when they reintroduced Coke Classic, and eventually New Coke was phased out and Coke Classic became just the brand, Coke resoundedly yeah. won the Cola Wars. And I believe it was it was that retreat back to move forward say oh oh you prefer this well what if we take right. it away now what do you think <laughs> oh no we miss it we miss it we miss it so you could make the argument that while new coke has become kind of a shorthand for a marketing disaster it created the something end, better it became the very thing that caused them to win the head-to-head -head battle kind of like santa Ana won the battle of the alamo but in the end, Texas right. won. The and everyone war. remembers the Alamo. <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, granted, that is a bizarre, bizarre analogy. Yeah. I'm the first to admit it. But I do think that, you know, it's one of these things that New Coke is always laughed at. And yet, Coke won the Cola Wars. And you can see the turning point being yeah. the introduction of That's New Coke. True. And I do think that if they didn't make the American public miss Coca-Cola, Eventually, Pepsi well, would have overtaken them. Now, Pepsi's yeah. done quite fine, thank you very much. But Coca-Cola is, is you know, by far and away the yeah, most popular sure. of the well, drinks. Okay, thank you for that. You still have a copy of that paper? 
I bet I do if I look hard enough. <laughs> I think it's lining a birdcage somewhere in here. So, um, so in other words, you can't read it straight through. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. All right, man. Well, and one one last one last thing about Pepsi yeah. is that Pepsi was actually the first Western company to make a deal with with the Soviet Union in 1972 to uh, to actually you know break the barrier and uh, you know they started selling Pepsi in the Soviet Union in 1972. The problem was is that afterwards. Once the, the the Iron Curtain came down, so at that point everyone would would able to was able to start getting Coke, and you know they actually people started liking it more. Yeah, <laughs> they better. had they had that of course I completely agree with that I I I I used to like Pepsi as a kid, but I I've grown to enjoy Coke more. Me too. What can I tell you? Okay, so then the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit I I have. Five pages of notes, but we're going to cut it down. Okay. About vending machines. Do you know when the first modern vending machine, I'm not even going to go into the, there there were vending machines in, in the dark ages, but we're not going to go there. Okay. I, I do when not, do you I think do was the first the modern? I do not have the answer for you. on this. Okay. So the first modern coin operated vending machine was introduced in London in the early 1880s where it, they were dispensing postcards. Okay, they would mm-hmm. sell in railway stations and post offices envelopes, postcards, and note paper for people to use it. Now, obviously, we all know what vending machines are. It's a machine where you put money in and you get something, you know. And I found a really, really long list of all these different types of vending machines. I'm going to quickly go through them. You have, first of all, a change machine where you can put money in and get change. You know, the machines were, were, are, are still used, especially in arcades and stuff like that these days. Um, you have cigarette vending machines, which are pretty much outlawed in, in the U.S. now. They're not used. I remember growing up, you know, I'd always go and I'd pull the the, the levers on them just for the, the fun of it. You know, you had the, the, these those levers that, that, that you pull and then you just let go and they, they bounce back and stuff like that. But they, yeah, I remember those. Right. They, they don't have them anymore because there's no way to curtail underage buyers. Because anyone can basically go in and take them. Uh, then you have uh, birth control and condom vending machines, which are mostly found in uh, public toilets, subway stations, airports, uh, sometimes in schools for public health measures, you know, in order to promote safe sex and things like that. There are even pharmacies that, that would have um, birth control vending machines outside for when they were closed so that people can get them. Then the most common type of vending machine is obviously the food and snack one which most people, you know, are very familiar with nowadays. You find them just about everywhere. And they they actually have vending machines. I mean, some of these things are, are, are just amazing. Some of the things I, I found out here. You have, you know, ones that, that sell candy and gumballs and things like that. Those are the highest, um, they, they have the highest profit margin of any type of vending machine because they would buy these candies for two cents a piece and sell them each for 25 cents. You know, that, that's just astounding, the amount of money that, that people were making on those type of things. Um, then you have uh, newspaper vending machines, which I've never understood because when you open it, you don't get one newspaper. You could open it and take 12. You know, <laughs> I, yeah. you know I, I don't know where, you know, how, how they were making money by doing that, but th- they have those. Then you have uh, vending machines that are that are basically photo booths where you put money in and it can take a picture. They used to actually have 
you know, uh, it, the film was developed in the machine at the same time. Uh, what else do we have? Again, there, there's just so many of these things. You have um, for phishing, they have bait vending machines. They have libraries that have book vending machines, which is a little crazy that when you think about it, they in this year, someone created a burger vending machine. Okay, it's a machine that will actually cook a fresh hamburger for you on the spot. Okay, they have French fry vending machines. They have pizza vending machines that that makes the pizza in in like three minutes where you can sit and watch it being being made. In the 50s and uh, from the 50s until the 70s, in a lot of airports, they had life insurance vending machines. Have you ever heard of something like that? I have not. No. Right. So it's it's basically where people could 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 buy a life insurance policy before they get on a plane in case it would crash. You know, that's just amazing that people would think of these type of things. Um, and they, they have, uh, you know, juice, juice vending machines where you can get like freshly squeezed uh, drinks, orange juice and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just amazing the type of things that you can get from a vending machine. You know, yeah. Unbelievable. So back to the minute. So as you said, you know, Neil and, and Dell are both looking around astounded about the fact that they're actually of what they just did that they just broke, they went right through the window, you know, and nobody hears them, nobody sees them. And, you know, thankfully for them, they didn't register in, in the motel. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to give, give any, any credit card or anything like that. You know, Neil just lost a $1,500 watch. That That's all he lost there. Yeah. And, and, and off they go in an inconspicuous car. Yes, completely. <laughs> And then Neil, like, uh, motions for him to come forward and grabs the passenger door. And that's actually how this minute ends. Yeah. So yep. one of the things that I do in every minute is I, I have a copy of the original script. Do you, do you know how long the original cut of this movie was? It was like three hours. Or it was three hours and 45 minutes. Okay. They cut mm-hmm. out two hours and 15 minutes from from the script. So. Every day I go through the, the various discrepancies. You know, the, the biggest discrepancy that they have in this minute is the, the way that they describe the, the room and that uh, Dell actually drives forward into the motel instead of driving backwards. I, I think it's actually funnier that he backs into it instead of him. Me too. You know, instead of him having to go forward at this point. So I'm actually glad that they changed that. Now, one of the things also is, is that they wake up in the morning and the entire room has it was it was apparently freezing and everything froze in the room. Okay, Neil goes into the bathroom and he he picks up the the toilet brush and it's stuck because it's it was frozen solid. Okay, and I mean they they, they go a little mm-hmm. too far. They show that the the shower head has you know like icicles on it and that uh, the toothbrush is frozen in the cup and and stuff like that. So I mean I'm glad they cut it out because I don't think it's really necessary. To have all these these things, and then we also see that that Neil pulls out his uh, shorts from the sink, which are completely frozen solid, right. because Dell wanted to do him a favor and wanted him to wash his his shorts for him, but now he doesn't have shorts. So again, I'm glad they 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 took all that out because it's just not it's, it doesn't add anything to to the movie, and the way that the scene is paced is just perfect. You know, having that extra scene Agreed. in the bathroom just wouldn't have uh, really worked. Every Monday we do a segment called Martin Monday, where my guests will 
give me their top five Steve Martin movies. Cecily, you want to give us your top five Steve Martin movies, starting from five, working your um, way up? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, as I said, as I mentioned before, I think that Steve Martin, who's one of my favorite comedians of all time, is has been uh, really underused. And he's, he's done a lot of films, which I do not think are particularly very funny. Um, the one that's not in my top five, but is, is one that I always find fascinating is Pennies from Heaven, because I think that it was a it kind of showed the potential of a Steve Martin film that, uh, you know, could have been made if his career went in a completely different direction. Um, I, these are all the films that I think have used Steve Martin the best. They're not necessarily the best films, but the ones where I think had the best Steve Martin qualities to it. Uh, Man for Man with Two Brains just makes me laugh and just consistently. Uh, in fact, three of the films on the list are part of his uh, collaborations with Carl yeah, Reiner. Makes sense. Uh, you have Man with Two Brains is in there. Um, I, I think there's a lot of funny in Bowfinger. Uh, which I think is is one of the better films that uses him. Uh, I like Parenthood. Uh, I think that it was a, he was a great use of him, less silly uh, and more sincere, but no less uh, no less effective. Uh, and then his top two ones. I mean, The Jerk is just funny, and it's so much great. And it's Steve Martin at the peak of his stand up days, doing a film which just brings his silliness into it. And my favorite Steve Martin film is All of Me. I think it was, I think it's one of his most interesting performances comedically. He's great opposite Lily Tomlin. There's just a lot of funny in that movie. You know, all due respect, L.A. Story and Roxanne are both very good. But uh, I just, The Jerk and All of Me are the two that I would probably watch the most and laugh the most. So those would be my top ones for Steve I, Martin. I think you said that, that Placer's Automobiles is on the top. Didn't you say that earlier? Well, yeah, I decided I decided to not include that because we're in planes, trains, and automobile territory as well. So, I mean, I guess other than that, well, you would uh, you would put yeah, planes, trains, automobiles all the way at the top, or more than, higher than than all I don't of know. Them? I don't know. I mean, like maybe I maybe. Uh, although I just think all of me and the jerk has is a better showcase of just pure Steve Martin. But yeah, I'd, I'd certainly put planes, trains in their top five as well. I mentioned a bunch of other right. films that said like planes from heaven and. and Sorry, uh, L.A. Story and Roxanne yeah. um, and, and some other ones. The Lonely Guy is not a good movie, but he's very funny in it. And there, there are scenes with Steve Martin and Charles Grodin that are funny to watch. The rest of the movie is not any good. But the Steve Martin and Charles Grodin scenes, which are clearly all improvised, uh, are really fun mm -hmm. to watch. Okay. I, I completely agree with you on that. All right, so another segment that we do every day is called Off the Beaten Track, where either myself or my guest will give a little uh, story about an adventure or misadventure that one of us have had over the journey of life. So, Sully, you have a, an adventure story for us? Well, I did stand-up comedy for a long time, and so I used to, in the days before the internet and cell phones and MapQuest and everything, you would I would drive to different cities, and I'd do like, 15 or 16 shows in 14 different cities in 16 days. It's like every day I'm wow. in a different place. And, and a lot of times you're driving, you're, I'm, I'm not going to the big, huge, great places to do comedy. You know, these are the places on the beaten path. And, um, and a lot of them were in the deep South. I did a lot of shows in the deep South and a lot of places where, you know, you, you really shouldn't be performing. 
And the interesting <laughs> thing is like, this is, again, most of this is in the nineties and you would go to the place and they would have, a, they would have faxed your information for the next place to go there. And like, I had all the maps made out there, mixtapes you have to listen to. Cause you're, if you're going around on the dial, you're just either trying to hopefully find a minor league baseball game on the radio or you're just listening to the classic rock stations. I can't stand country music. And everywhere you look, every motel I was booked in was a motel on the side of the highway next to a Waffle House, a gas station, wow. and a McDonald's. <laughs> and you, you would look out the window, and for like for a couple weeks straight, every day you look out the window, and you go, like, I don't know where I am. This could be anywhere. And I actually developed a habit, which was when I'd go into the uh, – I'd go into the room and uh, I would take out the yellow pages and I would put the yellow pages on the nightstand. So when I woke up, I said, where the hell am I? I would look over to the yellow pages. Like, oh, I'm in Decatur. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> because looking out the window, look out the window is not going to help me any. Um, and, but like, there was never any rhyme or reason of how the show was going to go. I had great shows and I had horrible shows and there was no way you could tell until it was happening. Pulling up to the venue didn't tell you anything. The show starting didn't tell you anything. It wasn't until I got on stage. Because I had some nights where I was like, man, this is going to be great. And I bombed horrifically. And there's some days where this is going to be one of the worst nights of my life. And it turned out to be great. And one of the the, the ones on the ladder was I, one of the nicest hotels I ever stayed in was in Columbia, South Carolina. They actually put me in oh, a wow. Sheraton. And it was like, it was like, actually, oh, my God, you mean the door to the hotel rooms on the inside? Oh, my God. I didn't realize I was a fancy <laughs> fans. And uh, I got there. Nice hotel room. Columbia, South Carolina is a nice city. It wasn't just uh, I was in some armpits and uh, they forgot to promote the Ooh. show. So nobody showed up. But I got paid the same either way. And so they asked me, you don't have to do a show, obviously. And I said, the wait staff was there. I said, do you want to hear me talk? And so I, me, I stood on stage in front of four waitresses and started doing comedy. I made an offhand reference to the David Lynch film Dune. And this one girl started laughing like crazy. I love Dune. So I stood on stage. I did 20 minutes of Dune material that had been built up over the years of me watching wow. that movie over and over again. And I and I said a quarter of the audience loved it, and I got paid the same as if it was a packed house. So that's a little bit of my. I mean, there are probably a bunch of stories I could tell from the road there, but I just that's that's a happy one and a that, relatively that's a great one. story. So that, uh, that yeah, that's uh, that was a period of my life. I did wow. a lot of comedy. Okay, like thank you very much for that. All right, uh, so do you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you? Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. At uh, Sully Baseball is my Twitter handle. Sully Baseball Podcast is my uh, Instagram handle. Uh, I host the Locked On MLB podcast. If you're a baseball fan, uh, we talk about baseball all year long, even during the offseason. And uh, I'm also popping up on all these movie-by-minute podcasts. I, I'm, a, I'm a frequent guest on them. Uh, and uh, I, I bounce all around there. All right, cool. And to find me is a very simple thing. All you do is a quick search for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. And you can find my website. So until tomorrow, you're fine. You're fine.